you're probably familiar with quips like this, uh, asking you, have you read the best-selling book, Humility and How I Attained It, by I Am Fake, or I Am, or maybe the other author that wrote it, I Am Demand. Uh, or maybe you heard the story about the pastor, pastor who was very humble. In fact, he was, he was so humble that on one particular Sunday, the congregation decided that they would give him a medal because of his humility. Sadly, the pastor was fired the next week. Uh, you may ask, why was he fired? Well, he chose to, wore the me- he chose to, to wear the medal into the services the next week, and because he wore his medal, displaying his medal of humility, the church had decided to, to fire him. And, and while preaching or listening to a message on humility can be a very squirming experience, it's not easy to preach on, it's not easy to listen to, Yet evaluating our personal humility is a crucial consideration. It's something we do have to examine ourselves about because Scripture plainly teaches that God honors the humble. He honors the humble. He resists the proud. Yet, in the name-it-and-claim-it atmosphere that exists in Christianity today, humility has become a very forgotten virtue. Why is humility so important? Why is it so important? And how is humility displayed? When can we know that humility is a part of our life? And, and what can, can, is humility visible in, in, in the lives of people that we observe? Uh, is it how they talk? Is it how... I mean, does humility look like this? Very quiet, very meek, uh, having your hands in a in a in a in a triangle position to show the uh, the the Trinity, or that's your attitude of prayer. Uh, what are the characteristics of someone who is truly a humble person, or if you really want to sound spiritual, humble? You know, you leave the H out. I'm a, I'm an humble person. Well, our text this morning is the second consecutive parable about prayer. Remember last week we looked at verses 1 through 8 and the theme of of, of that text addressed persistence in prayer. Uh, That we are to keep praying for justice, knowing that God is listening. We have a a God who listens. And while justice is delayed, and, and, and oftentimes it is delayed on this earth, while justice is delayed, we rest in His provision that enables us to endure, and we trust in His protection as He restricts the intensity of the persecution we are facing. Uh, Let me kind of take a a small rabbit trail here. And I I didn't read the article, but I I saw the the, the title of it. And the title of of the article was Providence, Not Probabilities. And as we think about what's going on in our world and, and uh, uh, we, we think about as we see the, 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 the rise of the confirmed cases and, and we hear more deaths and, and uh, we think about the fact of, uh, of the probability of, 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 of me possibly uh, contracting or, or being exposed to, to, to COVID-19. We always need to remember that, that, our, that it's, it's not probabilities, but it's, it's providence. It's God's providence uh, uh, we certainly need to do the things that we need to do. We certainly need to practice the, the things that those uh, uh, health experts are telling us to do. 
But our confidence doesn't rest in that. Our confidence rests in the providence of God. Now, in this parable, this, the theme that we're looking at today answers the question, how does one approach God in prayer? How, how do we approach God in prayer? And, 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 and the, the, the parable answers it. And the answer is, 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 can, be, can be summed up in this manner. One approaches God with humility and with confidence in His mercy rather than one's merit. How does one approach God in prayer? That question is not asked in the parable, but that question is, is certainly uh, addressed in that parable. How does one approach God in prayer? And Jesus, in telling this parable, answers it for us that one approaches God with humility and with confidence. With humility and with confidence in His mercy. That confidence is placed in His mercy rather than our own merit. Now, this truth is explained with a story of contrast. This parable is a parable of contrast. We're going to look at two men. Two men who are as opposite as they could possibly be. As day and night, as black and white, as up and down. These two men are, 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 are just completely opposites of one another. But not only is there a contrast of two men, there's a contrast of two prayers. And these prayers have a completely different approach and a completely different content. They're, they're, they're completely opposite. The approach of the one man and the approach of the other man is completely different. Just as different as they are, their approaches are different. Just as different as they are, the content of their prayer is different. And then Jesus closes out this parable in verse 14 as He draws the conclusion with two outcomes that are quite, they're, they're, they're certainly different and they are quite unexpected. And just like the previous parable, Luke informs us to whom the parable is addressed and the reason for this parable. Look back in the text there at verse 9. It says, Jesus told this parable to some. And now, so that this parable is being addressed to those whose confidence is misdirected. Well, how is their confidence misdirected? Well, the text says the, the, the some are those whom trusted, they, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This misdirected confidence results from pride. And it's a pride that reveals itself, according to the text, in two ways. It reveals itself by, by the individual, the sum, believing to be acceptable to God based upon their own merits. They are trusting uh, in their own righteousness. They're trusting in themselves that they were righteousness. They look at their lives, they look at themselves, and they're satisfied that God is pleased with, who, with what they're doing. But not only did they uh, 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 put their trust in their own merits, but they are misdirected because they have a condescending attitude towards people. They are superior to others, and they treat them with disrespect. That's probably this idea of uh, they treated others with contempt. Uh, the, the, uh, the sense of disrespect is probably uh, the, the, maybe the best nuance uh, for that. But they, they just this, this complete disrespect for other people. They believe themselves to be acceptable to God based upon their own merits, and they had a condescending attitude towards other people and treated them with disrespect. And in this parable, Jesus condemns both the attitude and the action 
that results from it. So let's look at how Jesus begins the parable. He begins the parable by introducing to us two men. Look at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We're introduced to the two main characters of this parable. In fact, they're going to be the only two characters in this parable. The two main characters of this parable have arrived at the same place. They've come to the same place. There are two men. We don't know anything about it. He, Jesus says that there are two men, and they went up to the temple to pray. They, 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 they arrive at the same place, and they are there for the same purpose, to pray. Two men, they're on their way to temple, and they're going for the same reason, to pray. That's the end of the similarities. That's the end of the similarity right here. Uh, they, they're going to the same place, and they're going for the same reason, to pray. That ends the similarity. Jesus then re- reveals the identity of these two men by their standing in the community. He says, two men went up to pray, one a Pharisee. Or literally, this one. This one, a Pharisee. Then he's going to introduce us to that one who is the tax collector. And, and that's important. Keep that in mind. We'll, we'll come When we get to the end, we'll see the importance of that. So Jesus reveals the identity, and he first introduces this one. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, this one, a Pharisee. Now immediately, as soon as the the people heard Jesus introduce this first person, this person would be loved. He would be the hero. Uh, Like when our ladies had the Purim party, and and, uh, you had had, uh, Mordecai and you had Haman. Mordecai was the hero. Haman was the villain. But when they heard this word that one of these men going up to the temple to pray was a Pharisee, he would immediately be loved. He would be highly respected. And he would be recognized as, the most, uh, as one of the most pious men in the community. As one of the most pious men in the community. And then we find Jesus introduces to the next main character. Two men went up to the temple to pray. This one, a Pharisee and the other, or that one, a tax collector. This one a Pharisee, that one a tax collector. Now immediately, when he says the word tax collector, these would be Jewish Jewish, uh, men who would be working in collaboration with the Roman government. And the minute he says tax collector, traitor, traitor. This is a traitor who serves Rome. He's hated by his fellow Jews. He's the worst, the worst kind of sinners. Now, we're told these two men come. They come to the same place for the same purpose. Both of these men offer prayers to God. But if you're listening, and the people that are listening to this parable, their perception is going to be this. As they hear that these two men, this one a Pharisee, that one a tax collector. They know. There's no doubt in their mind that as these two men come to pray, that the Pharisee is going to be heard. God is going to listen to the request. He's going to listen to the prayer of the Pharisee. While that one, the tax collector, prays, his prayer is not going to go any higher than the ceiling. His prayers are going to fall on deaf ears. So Jesus introduces us to the two men. They're similar in the fact of the place that they go. 
and they're similar in the fact of the reason why they're going. They're going to temple, they're going to pray, but the similarity ends there. Because one of them, this one, is a Pharisee. He seems to be righteous. He seems to be pious. His prayers are going to be heard. And that one is a tax collector. He's a sinner. He's a traitor. He's a servant of Rome. He's hated. His prayers are of no use. Well, Jesus then takes us into that area. And He allows us to hear the prayers of these two men. And we see their two prayers in verses 11 through 13. Uh, and, 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 and instead of observing these men in their prayers separately, we're going to do what this parable is meant for us to do. It's meant for us to compare and contrast. Let me read the prayer of both of these men, and then we'll tell you the four areas where you have this comparison and contrast. Look at the text there in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's four areas of comparison and contrast here. There's a contrast with their position. There's a contrast of their posture. There's a contrast of their pronouncement. And there's a contrast of their plea. So let's look at these four things. The first is the contrast of position. Go back into the text and we see that the Pharisee is standing by himself. Drop down to verse 13 and you find the tax collector, but the tax collector, standing far off. Standing by himself versus standing far off. Now, there, there's, there's some, some, uh, some things that we need to uh, address as we look at the first prepositional phrase there of standing by himself. If the prepositional phrase translated by himself, it, it can modify one or two words. If it's modifying the word stand, then you would translate it as the ESV has translated here, the Pharisee standing by himself. However, if the prepositional phrase here, by himself, modifies the verb prayed, and it can be one or the other, there's a possibility there, then the phrase would translate it like, would translate like the Net Bible translates it, prayed about himself. So you would translate it this way. The Pharisee prayed about himself in this manner, or thusly. And, and I think the way that the net translates it, I think the latter translation here makes better sense in the context, especially, again, the purpose here is to contrast this with the tax collector. Now, the tax collector, and we'll come back to this and we'll show what we mean by this. When you look at verse 13, it says, but the tax collector stands far off. He, he's probably at the very, he's probably in, in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, he, he, he's standing, he, he's inside the temple area, but he's, he's right on there. We, we'd put it this way, he's at the very back of the auditorium. He's walked in the doors and he is standing at the very back of the auditorium. Compared to the Pharisee, what's implied here is the Pharisee, however, as we're going to see in his prayer, his content, wants all to understand how righteous he is. 
And so the implication of, 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 of the net translation where you take by himself and that it modifies prayer, basically within this context is, is this fact that this Pharisee is praying loudly and in a very conspicuous place. While the tax collector comes in and stands at the, gets as far back, he, he's inside, he, 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 let's put it in he, he's inside the church, he's inside the auditorium where worship is occurring, but he, he, he's as, his back is right up next to the door. He's just barely inside the area of worship where the Pharisee has come and man, he's strutted up and he, he's right here. He's standing right here in the pulpit. He's come where, where he's seen, where everybody can hear him as he gets ready to pray. And so we, we have this contrast of positions here. We have this contrast of positions where, where we have the, 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 the Pharisee who is, who is making himself very conspicuous. He's finding the, 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 the most conspicuous place in, in, in the temple area where prayers are being offered and where the tax collector is far away. He's standing far away. But not only do we have this contrast of position, we have this contrast of posture. And by posture, I mean, notice how they both approach God. Notice how they both approach... What's their posture? How do they approach God? Well, again, let's go back to the text and look at the Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. Now, you're there... And you're listening, and as he begins to pray, and the standing was a normal way to pray. Oftentimes they would stand, they would lift their eyes up to heaven, they might pray with their hands up, they might pray like this, but they would pray with hands up, they would stand looking up towards heaven, and that was a, that was a typical, uh, acceptable way of, 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 of the way your body was positioned in coming to pray. And he starts off by saying, God I thank you. Now, what would you expect to hear next? God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for your mercy. His prayer, as he begins his prayer, it's a praise that seems to begin, a prayer that seems to begin with praise. It seems to begin with praise. He's getting ready to praise God for who He is, for what He's done. And we're sitting there and we're, we're listening and we're anticipating and, and, and we, we think we're going to be truly blessed by this man's prayer, this pious man's prayer, who's getting ready to praise God. But His praise is genuine praise, but it's not praise to God. Notice in this prayer that He refers to Himself in the first person, Five times. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Then he lists the other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Five times. Five times he refers to himself in the first person. Who do you think the subject of this prayer is? God or him? Who's the subject? God or Him? He also describes Himself in the active voice. Look down there in in verse 12. 
he talks about the fact, well, I'm sorry, verse 11, he tells us what I am not like. I am not like this. I am, I am not like other men. I am not like extortioners. I am not like the unjust. I am not like the adulterers. I'm not even like this tax collector. So in the active voice, he tells us what, I, what he is not. But then he also tells us in the active voice what he is. I do this. Look, at, look there in verse 12. He says, here's what I do. I fast twice a week. Now, now, the Jews were only required to fast one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But he's fasting here uh, on, uh, on twice a week, which, which indicates just, uh, I mean, he's going above and beyond anything that's expected. He, this guy is a super saint. He is going above and beyond. And not only does he fast twice a week, he says, I give tithes of all that I get. All that I get. Uh, as you read, sometimes they would tithe the food. As they were getting ready to eat, they, they, would, they, they would even set aside and tithe their food. I mean, this guy, now you talk about a guy who knows all the do's and all the don'ts. This guy knows all the do's and all the don'ts, and he's describing himself in that way. That's how he approaches God. He starts with what seemingly is going to be praise, but the person that he praises and the subject of his prayer is himself. So, what's the posture of the tax collector? How does he approach God? Again, look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. There are no first-person references in that prayer. None. There's no first-person used. Who's the subject of his prayer? God. They both begin with God. But that's, again, where the similarity ends. They both begin with God. But that's the end of the similarity. God is active. He's asking God to be merciful, and He is passive. Whereas whereas the Pharisee is, I'm doing this, and and I'm doing that, and I'm not doing this, and I'm not doing that. The tax collector says, God, I need this from you. And he's waiting passively for God to respond to his prayer. And notice, whereas we said earlier, talking about position, where the, where the Pharisee, it's, it's, it's implied that here the Pharisee makes his way up to the front, up to the front of the auditorium in, in, in the pulpit area where he can stand and he can pray. And, and I thank you, God, that I'm not like this one and I'm not like that one and I'm not even like this tax collector. In fact, God, I fast twice a week and I give tithe of all that I have. The, Pharisee can, uh, the tax collector can barely approach God. He's far off. I mean, he's he's just barely inside the area of worship. As we told you earlier, it was it was very it was acceptable for for people to pray with heads looking uh, with heads uh, bent and looking up towards heaven, hands raised as they as they make their prayer to God. But him, when you look at how he's described, not only is he far off, but his head instead of being lifted, is bowed. He can't even can't even look to God. And his hands, rather than raised, are beating his chest in contrition. Are beating his chest in genuine sorrow over his sin. Are beating his chest as he recognizes he 
is unworthy to approach God. He approaches God boldly. He's asking for mercy. He's approaching God boldly. But he approaches God with great unworthiness. He knows he's unworthy to be approaching God. Not only do we see this contrast of positions and this contrast of posture, but there's this contrast of pronouncements. The Pharisee sees himself as morally superior to others. And he goes way beyond the call of duty in his service to God. We, we read it to you earlier. We'll, we'll go back and look at it again. He is certain of his righteousness. He knows he is righteous. And he judgmentally compares himself to others. He, he, he's convinced of his righteousness. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men. I, I, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust, which would just be kind of a general term for, for sinners. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. Notice, he doesn't even know this guy, and yet he's lumped him in with all these other people. He has no idea who this man is. He has no idea. Uh, he knows he's a tax collector, but he has no idea about, about his relationship with God. But he, he, just by looking on the outward, he lumps them all together. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not even like this tax collector. I'm not even like this tax collector. He is certain of his righteousness, especially as he compares himself to people who aren't there and as he finally compares himself to somebody who is. I mean, I I just passed that tax collector as I was making my way in. And God, I thank you that I'm not even like him. I'm not even like him. Him. But not only is he certain of his righteousness, the certainty of, this, of his righteousness. Why is he so certain? Because the certainty of his righteousness is grounded in the confidence that he has gained by his religious activity. Why does he believe himself to be superior morally? Why does he believe himself to be so righteous? He, does, he believes that because of, of his religious activity. He says, I fast twice. You want, you want, to, know how, want to know, God, how, why I know I'm righteous? Because I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I could get. Let's put, I come to church, I give, I sing, I teach Sunday school, I stand behind a pulpit and preach. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a deacon, I'm an elder, uh, I'm a trustee. Uh, throwing all this religious activity out here. I know I'm righteous. I know I'm doing good. Because, because I, I'm not like other, I, as I compare myself to other people, I, I, God, you and I both know I'm superior. And, and, and God, and if that's not good enough for you, if that's not good enough, look at all what I do. Look at what I do for the church. Look what I do for you. That's where his confidence lies in. Well, what does the tax collector pronounce about himself? I want you to look at the text again. The ESV's trans. I'm going to give you kind of more of a a wooden translation here. He says the tax collector, standing far off, doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast, and then here's here's his pronouncement: "God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, toy hamatoyloi. God." Be merciful to me, toy, harmatoiloi, the sinner, the sinner. Part of the idea of that would be 
looking at the sinner this way, the one who's devoted to sin. God, be merciful to me, the one devoted to sin. The one devoted to sin. He offers no comparison of himself to others around him. He doesn't see himself that way. He sees himself as the one devoted to sin. Where sin has a grip on his life, or he finds himself going and repeating the same things often. And yes, as a believer and a child of God, we've been set free from sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin, but yet the remnants of our, uh, the, 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 our, our depravity is still with us. And, and, and often we choose to go to sin and often we struggle with the same sin over and over and over. And there's a lot of times where we are the sinner. We are the one devoted to sin. He makes no comparison to others. He offers up no service to God. God, I know I'm a sinner, but, but you know, I, I know I'm the sinner, but, you know, God, I, I'm, I'm really trying hard. And, and, you know, hey, I made it to church this week and you know, I, I listened to the, I listened to the, to, to, I mean, I, I, I even live streamed, you know. I even live streamed this week, you know. And I, I, I wasn't eating while I was doing it. I was really paying attention to what was going on. I mean, I, I, really, I, I was really into it this week, God. No. God, be merciful to me, toy. I'm a toy loy. I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. Contrast to positions, contrast to posture, contrast to pronouncements. And the parable ends with a contrast of pleas. Now, if you go back to verses uh, twelve, I'm sorry, verses eleven and twelve, and try to find the plea of the Pharisee, you're not going to find it. <laughs> There's no plea there. There's no plea there. Why? Because the Pharisee sees himself as already righteous. And people who see themselves as already righteous see no need. And if, you have, if you're righteous, if you see yourself as righteous and see yourself as someone who has no need, there's nothing to plead for. There's no plea to make. There's no request to make. You don't find any kind of plea in the, fair, in the, in the prayer of the Pharisee. But the tax collector, the one who identifies himself as the sinner, the one who identifies himself as the one who's devoted to sin, sees his need and knows his only hope, his only hope is found in the mercy of God. God, here's his plea, be merciful, be merciful to me. That's the only plea. That's his only plea. The Pharisee doesn't make any plea, but this tax collector says, God, be merciful. Merciful to me, the sinner. He sees his need and he knows that his only hope is found in the mercy of God. That's the parable. That's the parable. Verse 14 begins this way. I tell you. I tell you. It's a way, a phrase that means, here's the conclusion. It's kind of like when you know I say, now for our conclusion, and you know that that might still be 15, 20 minutes away. Okay? Uh, but Jesus says here, I tell you. He, and He's going to give us the two outcomes. 
Now, let, let's remember, I told you to remember, think about earlier, this one and that one. Remember, go, go back, go back if you would, up to verse 10. Two men went up to pray. Who's this one? Jubal, who's this one? The Pharisee, okay. And that one? The tax collector, okay. Yeah, this, sorry, Jubal. Uh, this one and that one, okay. This one and that one. This one, the Pharisee. That one, the tax collector. Now look at what Jesus does because the outcome, even in how Jesus words it, the outcome is an unexpected reversal. Verse 10, this one the Pharisee, that one the tax collector. Now look at verse 14. I tell you, this one, it says it's translated this man, but the idea there is this one, who's this one? In verse 14, this one is the tax collector. This one is the tax collector. Who's that one? This one went down to his house justified rather than the other or that one. Who's that one? The Pharisee. There's a role reversal. In verse 10, this one is the Pharisee. That one is the tax collector. In verse 14, this one is the tax collector and that one is the Pharisee. So Jesus gives us this role reversal. And remember... In the beginning of the story, whose prayer was expected to be heard and declared acceptable to God? The Pharisee or the tax collector? The Pharisee. The Pharisee. But look at Jesus' conclusion. I tell you, this man, this one, the tax collector, went down to his, just, to his house justified. His prayer was heard. His prayer was accepted. He was justified, he was vindicated by God rather than that one, the Pharisee. In other words, the one whose prayer didn't get any higher than the ceiling wasn't the tax collector. The one whose prayer fell on deaf ears wasn't the tax collector's prayer. It was the Pharisee's prayer. It was the Pharisee's prayer. Why this reversal? Jesus explains it to it in the last phrase. Here's the conclusion. Here is the theological principle of this whole parable. Here's the theological principle. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God commends the humble and condemns the proud. That is the theological principle of this parable. So what does humility look like? How can we know if we are living a life of humility. What's that look like in the life of a believer? Well, 
first of all, we would say it, it's somebody who treats people with respect because Jesus talks about it. It's somebody who doesn't see themselves as righteous because Jesus says this parable is written to those, to, to the some who, 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 trust in their, who trust in themselves because they believe they are, they're righteous in their own merit. Their merit makes them acceptable to God and, and they treat others with disrespect. But, but as you go into the parable, this is what we see. Humility boldly approaches God the sense of unworthiness. Humility is expressed in my life when I, when I recognize as Hebrews 4 tells me that I'm to boldly come to the throne of grace and, and, and approach God boldly and, and find grace to help in time of need. But as I boldly come to the throne of grace, I also recognize that in and of myself, there's nothing I'm unworthy to come into His presence. What makes me worthy to come into the presence of God is the fact that I've been robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because I am in Christ. I'm able to come into the very... I have access to the Father. Anytime access to the Father. And so humility is, is being, being evidenced in my life when, when, I, when, I, when I approach God and I, I come to God boldly. I... And just as this tax collector, he boldly asked for mercy. But at the same time, he approaches God with a sense of unworthiness. His head is bowed. He's beating. Instead of having his hands lifted up, he's, he's, he's beating his breast. Humility also is evidence in my life when I'm aware of my need. When I'm aware of my need, I recognize that I'm weak recognize that I need the power of Christ at work in me. I recognize that, that, that for me to, to live out my faith, it's not my, me pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, but, but I recognize that I have to have the, the power of Christ working in me for that to happen. Humility is evident in my life when I stop comparing and I start confessing. Humility is evidenced in my life when I stop comparing and start confessing. Well, Lisa, you, you do the same thing, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know I do this, but, but you do that too. And, I, and I, instead, of com, instead of comparing, humility is expressed in my life when I recognize this is what I've done and I confess it. That's a tough one. I don't know about you. That's a tough one for me. Especially in my interactions with, with, with Lisa at times. You know, we get in an argument or we get in a disagreement or let's just, let's just call it what it is. We get into a daggum fight, you know. We start fighting. And the easy thing for me to do, well, you do this. You do the same exact thing that I do. You know, you need, you need to start saying, you need, you need to quit focusing on me and see that you do the same exact thing. That's, but humility happens when I stop comparing and start confessing. Humility is also expressed in a person's life when they know that their confidence is not sourced in their activity. We serve God, but we serve God out of gratitude. We serve God because of His mercy and grace that's been bestowed and, and poured out richly in our lives. Humble people serve God. 
Humble people serve God because they do so out of, out of gratitude and thanksgiving for, for what God has done. But, but they don't find their confidence in their religious activity. They, they don't see their confidence as something to, to, to rest in and saying, you know what, I, I'm doing pretty good because look at what I'm doing here. Look at what's taking place. And so I, I, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Humility knows confidence is not sourced in activity. We serve God, but our service to God is not the reason why we think we're okay. One of the big flaws of fundamentalism is determining spirituality. And I, I'm a fundamentalist, but one of the big flaws of, of fundamentalism is, is determining spirituality by activity. I don't cuss, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. You know? So therefore, I'm spiritual. Therefore, I'm spiritual. No. No, Pharisees did all that. But who went to their house justified? Humility knows confidence is not sourced in activity. We serve God, but we serve Him out of gratitude and thanksgiving, not to demonstrate to everyone else that we're spiritual people. And the end result, the end result of humility is always. Why, why is humility so important? We, we, remember at the first we ask you, what, what does humility look like? How is humility evidence? And then we ask the question, why is humility so important? And this is why it's so important. is because the end result of humility is always mercy. The end result of humility is always mercy. Because God always resists the proud, but always gives grace to the humble. Why is humility so important? Because the end result of humility is always mercy. Because God always resists the proud, but He always gives grace to the humble. I want to close with a very, very personal illustration that I have permission to share. As most of you know, my youngest son has struggled a lot with alcohol. He has struggled a lot with alcohol. And his walk with the Lord for a long time hasn't been what it needs to be. And the last three years has been very, very difficult on the family. And I don't need to go into all the details. And again, I have his permission to share this. I don't need to go into all the details. Here, first of the year, life was, as it has on several occasions for him, just started caving in on him. And once again, life was caving in on him. And he and I and his brother, my oldest son, we, uh, Bryson, we, we, we met at a Starbucks there in, in uh, uh, Willow Park. And uh, we, looked for, we talked to him about ways that we can help him. We came up with a plan and looked for ways to help. And we set some boundaries around that plan. And, you know, all of us at one time or the other, we 
over the, especially the last three years or so, there's times when we, we've looked to help. There's times when we were sick and tired of it. And again, if you've ever been in that situation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So we, we set up some boundaries and, and we, we talked. We didn't preach, but we really talked and tried to share our heart and said, Grant, you know, things are really not going to change until your heart changes. You can do these things and we're going to help you as long as you're doing these things. But things are not really going to change in your life until your heart changes. And Lisa and I both have been praying about that a lot. When we preached on the parable of the prodigal son and how the father pursued and then how the father didn't pursue when he let the son who was in the far off country just kind of come to the end of himself. And we prayed for God to change his heart. And Grant did everything we asked him and and things began to move in a better direction for him. And and I, I was calling him as I keep, I keep up with the kids and see how they're doing. And, and I called him earlier this week. I said, Grant, how are you doing? He said, man, Dad, I'm doing really good. He said, let me, let me tell you what happened. And... Uh, he said, you know, he said, I've been trying to do the things that you guys are doing, but man, he said, I still, I still want my alcohol. That's where Grant runs to when things get stressful. And he said, Dad, I was in my work truck and I was driving and he said, I just started crying. I wanted alcohol so bad. He said, I just started crying. And I said, I prayed. And I said, God, I'm weak. I can't do this. I can't do this. Please, please, please take this desire away from me. And God did. God did. I'm going to say it works that way all the time. And Grant knows. Grant knows that let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. He knows that. He knows that. But he basically prayed the prayer that this tax collector did. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He said, Dad, Grant loves the outdoors. He says, Dad, when I go on my runs or when I'm riding my mountain bike, he said this week, it's been like I see people and they're drinking to have a good time. And I'm thinking, boy, what a waste. He says, I think up my mind's different. And, 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 and he was telling me how things have changed in his life since that. And, and I, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to it. And he says, Dad, he says, I'm even reconciling with people. And I said, well, who are you reconciling with? And he gave me a name of somebody who if you'd mentioned his name to him just two months ago, he might cuss you out and hit you or do, or do both. Do both. But he initiated the reconciliation to try to make things right. And I can't tell you and as, we were talking, as I was preparing this message, I, I thought about what I talked to earlier this week, and I, I called him up, and I said, Grant, this is what I'm preaching on, and man, what you did just fits right in with this, and, and do you mind if I... Sh- if you, I asked him, I said, there's three options. Either say, Dad, I'd rather you not share it, or Dad, you can share it, but don't use my name, or Dad, you can share it any way you want to. And Grant said, Dad, he said, I, I, I know how weak I am. And he said, you know... That's out in the open. And that's okay. It's okay to let people know how weak I am. He said, it's okay. 
And he said, if, he says, I know there's been people in the church. You know, those of you that have been in church for this church a while, you, you know Grant's, Grant was born when we were here at this church. And some of you prayed for him. And Grant said, if that can be an encouragement to them to let them know to let, how grateful I am for their prayers, he said, Dad, share it. He said, or maybe there's somebody out there, Dad, like me, who's, who's really, really... Grant would tell you how he did this and how he could, why he did this and all this and this reason and that reason. And he said, Dad, if there's somebody out there that just is out there and they, they're, they're trusting in their merit and, and if they can see that God can make this change in my life, He can make this change in their life, he said, man, that, that'd be a blessing. That would be a blessing. And it has been a joy. As Lisa and I were talking this week, I said, you know what? All this stuff that's going on around... I don't care. I mean, I do care. But I mean, it, it's, if I got coronavirus tomorrow, it's okay. It's okay. Because I've got a son now who thinks different. I've got a son now who's part of a small group Bible study. I've got a son now who, as soon as they're able to start church again, is going to join the church and get involved in the, in the, in the worship, worship band. And I just listened and sat in amazement of the fact of how this text fits exactly into his life. So let me ask you today, where do you need mercy? Where do you need mercy? Where are you finding your confidence in your own merit, in your own strength? Will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself? Will you admit your need? Will you quit comparing? Will you confess to God? And in your unworthiness, boldly approach Him and ask for mercy? He will. He will. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, that's how you come to Christ. You've got to see your need. There's nothing you can offer to God to make yourself acceptable to Him. And quit comparing. And Yeah, I know this person who says they're a Christian and they do this and I don't do that. Quit comparing yourself to other people. Stop comparing and start confessing. Quit looking around. Put your head down. Beat your breast figuratively, and cry out to God for mercy, for mercy. For those of you who are believers, let me just encourage you, we, we, we need mercy every day. We need God's grace every day. In the areas of your life where you're really, really struggling, I'm not saying that, that God will take that desire away that quick. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But God will give you the grace to withstand that moment. He'll give you the grace to help in time of need. In the nick of time, He will give you the grace that you need at that moment. But you've got to see your need. And you've got to cry to Him for mercy. For mercy. The end 
result of humility is always mercy. Because God always resists the proud. But He always gives grace to the humble. Father, thank You that You are a God of mercy and grace. Thank You that no matter how far away we get, no matter how deep in sin we go, no matter how many times we've failed over and over and over and over and over and over again, that when we stop comparing and start confessing, that when we see our need and that when we boldly approach You in our unworthiness, in our sense of unworthiness, that You hear. That You hear. Help us to grow in humility. Show us where we fail and encourage us where we're seeing growth. Father, help us to live each day as people who sense their need and who cry out for mercy. Thank you for who you are, for the grace and strength and hope that we find in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Bless your people today. Bless your word today. May we be changed by it through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. We love you and we're grateful, ever grateful for your mercy. We pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We're praying for you. We love you. Again, encourage you Wednesday night. We'll be sending out the link if you'd like to join us for our Wednesday night Bible study uh, through Zoom. I think Jubal's working on for the Tuesday night group and doing that. So kind of be those of you that are involved in that Tuesday night group, kind of look for that. And uh, Jubal will be getting that out to you again. uh, The Bible study lesson from the auditorium. Uh, will be available to you uh, this afternoon as well. Uh, if this this message will be uh, uh, uploaded to the da- up, or downloaded, uploaded, whatever loaded, which way it goes uh, to the uh, to the website, and uh, that will be available to you as well. God bless you. We love you. We truly, truly miss you. If you can join us for the for the Zoom, uh, you get to see one another and. Uh, I mean, fortunately, I'm, I'm married to a cosmetologist, so my hair looks pretty good, you know. I'm all trimmed up. Uh, but even if you're not trimmed up, that's okay. We'd love to see you. So God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us.